stranger to uh, Bethel Bible Chapel or Sault Ste. Marie. Uh, John Marriott grew up here, and uh, he and I spent uh, weeks together at Camp Oshpakung and, and uh, crossed paths at Cedar Campus and, and youth events that uh, happened in the Sioux area. Uh, he spent some years as pastor at Thessalon Bible Chapel down the line, and uh, now he lives in Los Angeles, California, with his wife, Nancy, and their children. John serves in the Philosophy of Religion and Ethics Department at Biola University, and he's also in the Institute for Religious Studies at Missional University. He holds an MA from Biola, an MA degree in Philosophy from the Talbot School of Theology, and a PhD in Intercultural Studies from the Cook School of Intercultural Studies. And his dissertation focused on deconversion from Christianity to atheism. John recently published a book about this, A Recipe for Disaster, Four Ways Churches and Parents Prepare Individuals to Lose Their Faith and How They Can Instill a Faith That Endures. I'm still not used to calling him Dr. John Marriott, but would you please welcome Dr. John Marriott as our final speaker. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, it's a privilege to be here with you. So many people who uh, have played a role in my life growing up, uh, whether it's been uh, family who are here or it's people who have been in the church family or people who have been in the ABK family. And uh, so it's a privilege to be able to share with you today. And as Brian said, I've spent the last several years uh, investigating and talking to people who once identified as Christians and now no longer do, and uh, that's become somewhat of a, of a real area of, of growing interest for me, and I've discovered some things and would like to share them with you today. And before we begin, though, I want to say this, that regardless of what you hear today, um, what you need to know is that you can do everything right in raising children or discipling them or leading them in church, and they still may end up never following Jesus. And you can do everything wrong, and they still may end up following Jesus. And so what you hear today uh, shouldn't either discourage you, certainly shouldn't discourage you, because um, there is a large role that is played by folks who end up walking away from their faith. And we'll see that in, in a moment. But um, uh, no one here should feel um, as though it's their fault if they have someone who they know or someone who they love who has left their faith. And um, you should be encouraged by some st from, uh, from people and from at least one example I'll share with you at the end that there are those people who have left and who have returned again. And so let's begin by uh, taking, taking a, a look at the title, A Recipe for Disaster and a Prescription for Success. Uh, again... The recipe for disaster doesn't always produce a disaster, and certainly the prescription for success doesn't always produce a prescription, but there are some general truths in both. Let me tell you a story. This is um, uh, one of my heroes growing up. His name was Jonathan Edwards, and some of you know about this. Jonathan Edwards was the world record holder in the triple jump. This is actually his world record jump in 19... 95 at Gothenburg, Sweden, where at the World Championships, he jumped 18 meters, 29 centimeters, or 60 feet, one quarter of an inch, and he shattered the world record. Now, the reason why he was my hero is because in high school and in elementary school, that was my niche event. It was the thing that kind of gave me my identity and set me apart from everybody else in town who played hockey. It was the one thing that I was kind of good at, mainly because a lot of other people didn't do it. And so I ended up getting some success at that and, and went off to college on an athletic scholarship and I was competing at the university level and I was doing very poorly, um, never being able to really uh, live up to the expectation that the university had for me. 
And all this time, Jonathan Edwards was having this amazing success. And what really drew me to him was that Jonathan Edwards was a really committed Christian. He identified as a follower of Jesus. The British press, who are known for uh, being able to dig up dirt on anyone, were more impressed with his character than they were his athletic accomplishments. He was named the BBC Athletic Personality of the Year. He was named the International Athletic Federation uh, Athlete of the Year. Uh, he uh, broke the world record twice in one meet, and he has jumped farther than anyone else. He has the top five jumps in, in the history of the world still today. And he was uh, more comfortable back leading songs in the Christian athletes group in the athletics village at the Olympics or the world championships than he was giving interviews about his great athletic success. So this guy is the real deal. He even had missed opportunities to compete at the Olympics because he grew up in an environment where competing on a Sunday was frowned upon. And so he decided that even though the Olympics were his goal, they were going to be on a Sunday and he did not compete in those Olympics because he wanted to be faithful to what he believed the Bible taught. Well, in 1996, the year after he broke the world record and I had pictures of him plastered all over my dorm at the university, my university went to... Florida State for the Tallahassee Florida State Relays and we were competing there and I was in a uh, I was doing very poorly and and almost wanted to, and, and wanted to quit and that morning I went out to the track when we got there and my roommate came over to me and said you'll never guess who's here and I said I don't know who's here well it turns out that Jonathan Edwards my hero is in the weight room now Jonathan Edwards is from Great Britain and here in March of 1996 he was in the weight room at Florida State University so I went into the university. I went into the weight room, watched him exercise, uh, tried not to let him know I was watching him. Waited till he was done, and I went over to him, introduced myself, told him that uh, you know that I was a Christian and that I really admired him, and that I did the triple jump, and I you know, tried to help him connect the dots and all the points of contact that that connection that we had in common and asked if he would mind talking with me. And he was very gracious and said, hey, why don't we go out for lunch tomorrow? And he took me out for lunch, and um, we talked about triple jump, and then he told me about how he wants to go to Dallas Theological Seminary when uh, he is done competing, and he wanted to get into full-time Christian ministry, and we got into his car. It was a modest car, it was a Chrysler, modest Chrysler Intrepid, and he turned the engine on, and Christian music was coming out of the radio. So I knew this guy was the real deal, right? He was, I mean, he, so... We go out for lunch, we talk about track and field and all that kind of stuff. The next year was uh, the Olympics. He came second. He had a bad day. But in 2000, uh, in, in Sydney, Australia, he wins the gold medal, and he is the Olympic champion. He's done it all. World champion, Olympic champion, European champion, indoor champion, outdoor champion, indoor world record holder, outdoor world record holder, committed Christian. He retires and becomes the face of Christianity in Great Britain. He is the host of the BBC flagship religious program called Songs of Praise. It is a Sunday morning longest running television show perhaps in the world. It's been going on for about 60 years and it is a Sunday morning broadcast for shut-ins in Great Britain and he's the, he was the host of it. In 2007 I decided I would look him up online and see what was the latest with him and here's what I found out. I don't miss my faith. I feel more settled and happier without it. I'm happy and actually it's fine. In fact, more than ever, I feel comfortable with where I am in life. I felt like someone punched me in the stomach because Jonathan Edwards, my hero, this guy who did the, the triple jump and this guy who was such a committed Christian had deconverted and now was identifying as an unbeliever. He was identifying as an atheist. 
title of the article said something like, uh, you know, Jonathan Edwards loses his faith, or Jonathan Edwards now atheist. And I couldn't believe it. And the more, yeah, and Jonathan Edwards, by the way, is, is just sort of the tip of the iceberg of this phenomena of people who were once identifying as committed believers and, and no longer do. And so I want to give you some statistics, and statistics, you can do lots of things with statistics. There's a book out called How to Lie with Statistics, and because you can get them to say almost anything that you want. Now, some of these stats I'm going to show you are, are done by scientific studies by people who have really put in the time and the effort, and some of them are not so uh, scientific, but they, they're just from experience and, and some leaders of major denominations. But all of the studies, and I could list for you probably 22 or so of them, whether they're done by Pew or Gallup or Lifeway or any, any of these studies, all really point in the same general direction. And so whether these are specific and, and 100% accurate or not, they're all saying the same thing. So the Southern Baptist Convention says that they're losing about 70 to 88% of their youth after their freshman year in college. 70% of teenagers involved in church youth groups stop attending church within two years of their high school graduation. That's from the Southern Baptists. The Assemblies of God say at least half and possibly two-thirds of Christian young people will step away from their faith while attending a non-Christian college or university, and between 50 and 67% of Assemblies of God young people who attend a non-Christian public or private university will have left the faith after, after four years of entering college. Lifeway research says 70% of students will lose their faith in college and only 35% of those will eventually return. And the Pew Research Center says nearly 23 of Americans identify as nuns. That's almost a quarter of the population of the United States identify as nuns. And a nun is someone um, who just says, I have no religious affiliation whatsoever. And 78% of those were prior, they were religious prior to their identification. So let me just make that clear. 23% of the population of the United States today identifies as, uh, as not having any kind of religious faith. A large percentage of those people once did have a religious faith, and now they no longer do. Pew says that for every one person who becomes a Christian, four leave. So think about the future of the church when it comes to, to that. And 35% of millennials who were born between 81 and 96 consider themselves nuns or people who just don't have any kind of religious faith. You can go on the internet and find literally tens of thousands of stories. And sometimes we have people give their testimony. You can find lots of deconversion testimonies or their unchristian story where they will share with you why they were Christians at one point in their life and now they no longer are. Xchristian.net is just one of those. And um, they have all kinds of people who once identified as believers on there. The Clergy Project is a, is a website that has been set up for those who are in the pulpit and who are in ministry but don't really believe what they are preaching and yet find themselves stuck. Because you can imagine if your whole life has been in ministry and that's where all of your friends are, that's where your income comes from, um, that's all, your social circles, you don't have any other maybe uh, employable skills and you've now kind of realize that you don't believe any of what you're preaching anymore, you just can't believe in it, uh, what are you supposed to do? And the Clergy Project is a group of ex-clergy, ex-pastors, ex-missionaries, people who were once in full-time ministry who no longer are. And I have talked to people from across the spectrum that would really shock you, some who have been uh, pastors, some who have been missionaries, some who have been worship leaders, 
and now say, I just don't believe it. I can't believe it. And they'll make an analogy comparison to when they lost their faith or they lost their belief in Santa Claus. And no longer, no matter how hard they try, they just can't believe in Santa Claus anymore. And it would be disingenuine to believe in Santa Claus. Same way when it comes to maybe the existence of God or the reliability of the Bible or the person of Jesus. And sometimes the stories are really shocking. One woman who I have met and, and still keep in contact with is a woman who at one point in her life uh, became a believer at a youth retreat. She got involved at a church, got involved in a mentorship internship program, became a worship leader at the church, and then a youth leader at the church, had spent five or six years in the church, went through a very discouraging and upsetting experience in her life that involved people in the church. That led to her questioning whether or not what she believed really was the truth, because if God really existed and these people were really his people, why would they treat her so poorly? Came to the conclusion that they weren't really God's people, and then came to the conclusion that God didn't exist, and has gone from being almost in the pulpit, if you will, to making over 200 porn movies. So the stories can be uh, as extreme as that, or they can just be from, I once believed and I went to church and now I've just kind of disassociated with all that stuff and I'm just doing my own thing. So that raises the question then, what causes the loss of faith? And you'll see that I have causes in quotation marks because it's almost impossible to say what causes the loss of faith in the same way that it's impossible to say what causes someone to be a Christian, right? It's different for every person. There are some social causes, there are some... um, personal contributing factors, some character traits, there are relationships, all of that kind of goes into the mix. But if you were to ask people who have left their faith, why did you leave and what are the problems that you had, they will almost always say one of these uh, responses. Number one, always, is problems with the Bible, which is why this is such a good conference to be at and to think about, and I'm glad is being, you know, is, is being put on, because the number one problem that people have that eventually lose their faith is they said, I decided to pick up the Bible and read it for myself. I decided to read the Bible for myself. And you know what I found in there? Man, there's a lot of immoral practices in the Old Testament. There's a lot of people being killed. There's a lot of laws that I just don't match up with my modern moral sensibilities. What is with this circumcision thing anyway? Why does God care about that? Why is there so much blood being shed all over the place? I heard all the good stories, but I didn't hear any of this kind of stuff. Or I was told that there are no errors in the Bible. And if there is an error in the Bible, it can't be God's word. Because if it's God's word and God can't lie or be mistaken, then he would inspire a book that has no errors in it. And if there's one error in the Bible, then it can't be God's word. You can disprove the entire Bible by finding one error in it. Well, guess what? I found what I think are lots of errors in it. Geographical errors, historical errors, scientific errors. And then, what about all the contradictions? I remember being told once, if someone ever tells you that there are contradictions in the Bible, you should hand them the Bible and say, show me one. Don't ever do that. Okay? Don't ever do that. Because there are problem passages in the Bible. There are, there are p- passages that are really hard to harmonize. There are difficulties with the text of the Bible. I think like... Kirk said earlier that we don't understand everything, but we trust that God has given us this reliable book. And just because we don't have all of the answers or we can't explain it all doesn't mean that it's not true. It just means that we're somewhat limited. And so number one problem is that 
the Bible is um, the fundamental foundational document and it does not live up to expectations. Number two is science. Science and the Bible just don't jive together. Uh, Evolution is true and if evolution is true then God just doesn't exist. Now that doesn't follow but many people think that it does. If you become convinced that, that evolution occurred then you can't be a Christian anymore and you certainly don't need to believe in God anymore. Because somewhere along the way they've been told that or they have assumed that to be the case. And they go off to you, a, a university or somewhere else and they become convinced that evolution is the means by which uh, human beings have uh, arrived here and they're persuaded that there's enough data for that and the evidence is good for that, they think. Then they come to the conclusion that, well, then that just discounts God. So what am I supposed to do? Believe in, you know, tell, tell myself that I don't really believe in this when they've kind of convinced me that, I, that, you know, that it happened and, and hold on to a belief in God. Um, or be intellectually honest and have some integrity and go where the data leads. So that's sort of the rationale or the thinking behind it. Another one is that we don't really need God anymore because science is and is continuing to explain everything that we used to appeal to God for. So, I mean, you can just think of back in the Middle Ages or beyond where God is the explanation for a lot of things that we don't understand. Why is it thundering? Why is it raining? Why is there a famine? All of the gods of the ancient world are explanations that people have come up with to account for natural phenomena. But science has gotten to the point where we can explain why all of these things happen. And so the space for God is getting smaller and smaller and smaller as an explanatory causation. And eventually, as things go, we won't need God at all, right? So science can explain what God used to. Um, the other one is that there are just no good evidence, there's no good evidence or there's no good arguments for the existence of God, that the arguments that have been given, sometimes people hear, and then they say, wow, I never heard the other side to this before, and now I've heard the other side, and this is really problematic. Now, I can relate to this, because growing up in Sault Ste. Marie, if on Saturday night you tuned your radio station to 90.5, and it was cloudy, you could get a broadcast from a Christian station that would bounce across Lake Superior and you could listen to a Christian radio station. So I could listen to Christian radio. I could ride my bike down to the Christian bookstore that Miss Frizzell owned before Wes took it over and I could get Christian books that were in support of my faith. I, I bought a book from Miss Frizzell. It was called um, so, uh, The Bible Has the Answer, written by Henry Morris, and it was about how the Bible you know, is a reliable book. I could come to church and I could talk to people here who had que- when I had questions and they could support me because there's a group of people that meet each week. I could find ministries that, had, uh, that, that, that answered questions and in the age before the internet uh, they were a little bit more difficult to get in touch with but you could find them and you knew that there were people out there. Books were being written like Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell that supported the Christian faith. And so you could read all of those arguments And just like on a good episode of Dateline or 48 Hours Mystery, for the first half of the show, you could be convinced that the person that the show is about is completely guilty of the crime, right? You ever watch those documentaries on TV about some sort of crime that's taken place? And they say, well, here's the reasons why. And by the halfway point of the show, you say, well, that guy really did it. He really, you know, he killed his wife. But then after you hear the second half of the, the show, they present the other side of the case. And you go, oh, now I don't know what I think about this whole situation. It's much more, it's much muddier and, and unclear than I thought the first half. So that's what sort of life is like for a lot of folks. They do hear the first side of the argument because they're exposed to it, because there's this infrastructure of Christianity that is in their world and that they're a part of that can support them. 
But they never hear the other side because there are no atheist publishing houses. There are no atheist television networks. There are no atheist radio networks. There are no atheist weekly meetup groups. These are individual people who are really kind of scattered throughout uh, their communities who have very little contact and interaction with one another until what comes along that unites them all and gives them all a voice? The internet, right? The internet has allowed a thousand atheist apologists to bloom and to respond to the arguments that I was very familiar with growing up and that I had spent a lot of time reading but I had never heard the other side for. And so people will say things like, look, there are no good arguments because you gave me this argument and I heard a response to it over here. Now, I don't think that that follows just because a response is given that that means it's a good argument and I don't think that even if it's a good response that it necessarily means that you should give up your faith. It may just mean you need to do a little bit more work and go through a few more steps and follow the arguments and the discussions back and forth. But a lot of people will say no good evidence for what they believe. And lastly is disappointment with God and Christians. Disappointment with God because God does not do what they expect him to do. We have a deeply uh, intuitive belief that we should... Uh, practice this idea of reciprocity, right? Sort of kind of a um, I scratch your back, you shave mine kind of thing where we treat each other with equality. And if I invite you over for dinner, then kind of deep down I'm thinking that I should probably get an invitation. Even if I think that that's not right to think, I kind of expect that, you know, we, we really have this, if you give me something for Christmas, I feel like I have to run out and get you something for Christmas. Well, we also apply this to God, that if we live a particular way and if we're being faithful and if we're serving him in the way that we think that he wants us to serve him, that he is going to pay us back in kind. And when that does not happen, and when people who deeply want to have children and are loving God and serving God don't have them, or someone who has really committed their life to stepping out in ministry and then they end up going bankrupt and they end up losing their home and they have to move in with their in-laws and God doesn't come through, or when... Christians hurt other Christians and malign them. People get really disappointed and really hurt. And sometimes, even though being hurt by Christians and being hurt by God doesn't mean that God exists and Christianity is false, it's the crack in the door that opens up people's, uh, that opens up the, the mind of folks to start to say, and you know what? These people have treated me really poorly and this God hasn't done what I wanted him to do. You know, the Trinity never made sense anyway. And I'm not really sure the Bible is all that reliable. When you are in a group of people that are supporting what you believe and that are loving you and treating you kindly and encouraging you, helping you to flourish as a human being, it is easy for you to kind of ignore some of those cognitive tensions in some of the things that you believe. But those things will bubble to the surface when that group you feel has betrayed you. And that can be the doorway by which people start to question whether or not God exists. What I want to say is that it's not so much causes that, that really, like one cause or a particular cause that direct people to lose their faith, but it's really more of a recipe. And recipes are made up of three things. One is ingredients, two is a preparation, and three is where you cook those ingredients and after you've prepared them. And that's what the recipe for disaster is. And so my book, and, and what I've been uh, speaking about, is how do we... Uh, how, what is the role that we play as a church or as Christian parents or as youth group leaders? What role do we play in the formation of people who, are, uh, who have become Christians or who are growing in their faith? Because we want to make sure that uh, the role that we play is a preparation role, that we are not preparing people for a crisis. 
Well, let's take a look at number one. This is the ingredients. And that, the ingredients are the kind of personality traits or characteristics that people bring with them uh, into the Christian faith. And there, there is what I guess you could call a deconversion profile. And what this is, is a, a profile of characteristic um, personality traits and personal values that people who tend to identify as non-believers, they tend to statistically score highly in these ingredients. Now, I know many people who score highly in these ingredients and are still very committed Christians who love the Lord. But statistically, people who score high in these areas tend to either leave their faith or they never become believers in the first place. They fall more on the, the side of, of being a, a, a nun or a non-believer. Number one is this, is above average intelligence. People who are atheists or who leave their faith tend to be above average intelligence. They score near the top of their classes. They're kind of like straight-A students. They're analytical thinkers. They're critical thinkers. And they've typically developed a high uh, confidence in their ability to think well and their ability to figure things out. Number two is people who are open to experience. People who are open to experience are those kinds of people who say things like, skydiving, sure, I'd love to try it. It's new, is it exciting? It's something I haven't done before? Great. There's a Buddhist monk speaking down at the student union? Sure, I'm interested in going to hear what, the, you know, what he or she has to say. Um, being open to experience is someone who is just not guarded and not closed, who says, this is what I believe and I don't want to ever be challenged in it. I don't want to hear anything. I don't want to try anything new because that might shake me up. So people who tend to be on the, the side of the, the, that, that side tend to be people who um, are open to experience. Low tolerance for authoritarian leadership. No one likes authoritarian leadership. Authoritative leadership is okay, but authoritarian leadership is bad. And people who, uh, many people who walk away, when you, when you ask them to take these tests, really score high on this, they say, look, I have, I have a really hard time with authority. And, and when it's really, uh, if you're really going to push down on me, I'm just going to push back. A high tolerance for ambiguity. If you are coming out of an environment that says, this is the truth, this is the truth, and the only truth, it's all black and it's all white and there's no gray, and you take it all or you don't take it at all, and you have this high tolerance for ambiguity, which just means, I can see both sides, it seems more gray, I can't be as dogmatic, then you will tend to be someone who will fit more of a deconversion profile. A high value of self-determination. I like doing what I like doing. I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. I have this need to be in control and, and exert my way. And a low value on benevolence, which just means kind of this lower value on caring for others and looking out for the needs of other people. And lastly, being university educated. None of these things are inherently wrong, by the way. None of these things are inherently bad. Maybe a low value on benevolence isn't great. And a high value on self-determination is not always wrong. Um, I think that, that that can be expressed in positive and healthy ways. And going to university isn't a bad thing either. But if you are someone who has all of these characteristics or you know someone who is, then statistically, not necessarily, but statistically, these are the ingredients that um, people who walk away from their faith tend to express. Now, the cooking environment is when you bake something and you have to cook it, you put it in a crock pot or the microwave or an oven and that brings all the heat and all the pressure on all the ingredients and how you've prepared them to a final result. And people who have certain tendencies and, and characteristics and who are thrust out into our world that is, is, is really moving in a, is continually moving in kind of a more secular, less Christian, 
especially in Canada. The numbers are, are, are much greater in Canada, like numbers of nuns, uh, numbers of those who, who don't believe, or the separation of, of religion and, and um, public affairs in Canada is, is, is much different even in, than in the United States. But if you're in this environment that is, is, is much less, where religion is less respected, where being a Christian may make you feel a little bit more uh, on the spot or in a spotlight in an uncomfortable kind of a way, then, um, then that's challenging. Now, you can't control the ingredients. You can't control the temperament or the personality or the values that someone brings into your home or into your youth group or into your church. And you can't really control anything about your culture. But the only thing you can control is how you prepare those ingredients. And so that's what I want to focus on. And we're going to take a look at a a few ways that we don't... Some mistakes or some methods of poor preparation that set people up for a crisis of faith. And uh, I'm going to take a look at three, and, and that's just for the sake of time. There are four in the book. Number one is this, we sometimes over-prepare people, and I'm going to call it here because there is a burden of truth. And what that means is this, it, this is what it looks like. It's an inability that people have to affirm the essential beliefs of the version of Christianity, uh, that should say, that they received from their church or their family. Somebody who is over-prepared is someone who is characterized by this inability to affirm the essential beliefs that have been passed on to them. They've been told, this is what Christianity is. This is what Christianity kind of is in total. This is what it looks like in practice. And you need to accept this because this is what it means to be a Christian. And they feel that even if one of a large number of their beliefs or practices is false, then that just falsifies Christianity as a whole. I see people taking notes, so I'll just pause here for a second. So, so how does this happen? It happens when people are given the idea that, a, or, 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 or offered a prepackaged set of beliefs, or kind of a take, or a version, or a perspective, or an interpretation on Christianity, which is mistaken for Christianity itself. I, I see this over and over and over again when I talk with people who come from different denominational backgrounds or different Christian smaller groups, and they start telling me about their Christian experience and what they're rejecting. And you know what I hear them rejecting? I don't hear them rejecting Christianity or rejecting the person of Jesus, but I really hear them rejecting a version or a vision or an interpretation of Christianity that their particular unique denomination has handed to them and told them that this is Christianity. I mean... We're part of this denomination. We're part of this group. Why? Because this is what we think the truth is. This is what it's right. Those people out there and those other denominational groups and smaller sects, well, if we thought they were right and they were in the truth, we would be part of them, but they're not right. People who drive hours and hours to go to churches when there are very good evangelical churches in their own community... And, and, they, and, and other folks are driving... And, and some of these people will drive hours to go to churches because that's the church, that's the truth. They're the ones who are in the truth, and that's where we're going to go. And there is this large number of essential beliefs that cannot be compromised. These are like non-negotiables. If you get rid of these, then you've just sold the farm. Give up on one of these, then the whole Christian faith, the whole edifice tumbles. And so we over-prepare people by telling them that our version or our interpretation of Christianity is Christianity itself, and then say, take it or leave it. There really are no options. 
And, and, and to be explicit, this is what it looks like. A real Christian doesn't compromise the truth. And I think that we would all tend to think that if the Bible teaches something, right, then we need to uphold it. We can't say, well, I don't like it or uh, I, I can just ignore it. But as a Christian, if Jesus is Lord and his word is something that we're submitting to, then there's a real truth to this, that real Christians don't compromise truth. X is biblical Christianity. Now here's where things get sticky. X is a large number of beliefs and practices that are, that are particular to a specific set of believers. And in reality, it's not necessarily Christianity itself. It's an interpretation that's mistaken for the thing itself. I know that that's up there, but let me say it again. That it, in reality, is not Christianity itself, but it's an interpretation of Christianity that is taken for the thing itself. And therefore, being a real Christian means holding to X in its entirety or not at all. Because if I'm going to be a real believer, if I'm going to be a real follower of Jesus, and, um, and, and, and that means you know, reading a particular Bible version or having a particular uh, way of doing church or a particular way of, a particular mode of baptism, then I have to do all of those things. I have to believe all of those things because if I don't, then I'm not really being a real biblical Christian and that's the only way to do so. Let me give you some examples of non-negotiable beliefs that I think are negotiable and that I do not think are essential, but get elevated to the essentials. Because once you hand someone this prepackaged, very in this very un, inflexible yet fragile set of beliefs, every belief in the system supports every other belief in the system, and you cannot pull one out and the system still stand. It will all collapse, which means that all the beliefs become essential beliefs. Now, I want to say before I put any of these up on the, the, the board, let me explain them to you what I mean before you might have a sort of a visceral reaction to some of them. <laughs> People who are overburdened with the truth have been told that the Bible does not and cannot have any errors in it whatsoever. And if it does, it's not the Word of God. It's the number one reason why people come to the conclusion that the Bible is not true and that Christianity is false is because then they read it or they read others who have an agenda to show that the Bible is false. I am not saying that there are errors in the Bible in the original text because the belief that there are no errors in the Bible is not that the belief that you hold, the Bible you hold in your hand has no mistakes or no errors in it. The Bible that you hold in your hand does have challenging passages in it. 1 John chapter 1. We, these things we write unto you that your joy may be full. If you're reading one translation. These things we write unto you that our joy may be full. If you're reading another translation. We don't have the original manuscripts, right? We have reconstructed the originals, as you've heard, from many, 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 many copies. And yet there are places where we're not exactly sure what the original still said. Do we have a high degree of confidence that the majority of the New Testament we have reconstructed? Yes, a very high degree. Are there examples in our Bibles where it does seem like there are some contradictions? Yes, there are. Hard to harmonize all of the gospel resurrection accounts. Possible, but, but it's difficult. Not everyone accepts all these harmonizations. Did Solomon have 14,000 horses or 40,000 horses? Depends whether you're reading 1 Kings or 1 Chronicles. Right? 
So the Bibles that we have in our hands today do have challenging passages in them where you say we're not really exactly sure what the original said. And when we tell people that the Bible has not, cannot have, never has, never will have any kind of mistakes in it, and if it does, it can't be the Bible, we are setting them up for a serious problem. The doctrine of inerrancy says this, that in the original manuscripts that were written that we don't even have anymore, there were no errors in what was written. But we know for a fact that the copies have mistakes and errors in them. We just think we've done a really good job of weeding those out and reconstructing the, the, the originals to a really high degree of accuracy. And let's just assume for a second that there really is one error in the Bible, one historical error in the Bible. That in the original, it said Solomon had 14,000 horses and 40,000 horses. And there's no way to harmonize that. I just want to say that that does not follow that we cannot trust the Bible when it says that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The Bible only needs to be generally a reliable historical document on the life of Jesus, that he really was born, that he was who he, he made these claims, that he died, and that he rose from the dead. If you can, that, that, is, that is the... That is the most significant and important thing to pass on. Everything from there becomes kind of an in-house dialogue of, okay, so what do we think of the Bible as Christians? What is an honoring way that to, to understand the nature of the Bible as the Bible speaks about itself? Does the Bible give us reasons to believe that when God originally inspired it, he did it in a way that was without any errors, right? When we start off and tell people that if there's one error in the Bible, it can't be God's word anymore, we set them up for a crisis because now they have to be able to hold on to their faith. They have to defend every alleged problem in the Bible. And if you, I could take you to Liberty University, I could take you to Biola University, and I could show you this many books in the library that address apparent problems and contradictions in the Bible. That's a lot of defending to have to do. So what I want to say is not that there are errors in the Bible, but even if there were, it doesn't mean that we cannot trust what it says when it comes to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. The slippery slope argument that if there's one, then we can't trust anything just does not follow. Number two, many people, many, many people then will say things like, hey, I was told that if the Bible, that, that the Bible says what the Bible means, and if it's not saying what it means, then it's not true. And the Bible says that God created the world in six literal days, 24-hour periods. And I was told that if I don't believe that, then I, then I lose the rest of the Bible. A young earth literal interpretation is a very defensible position to hold. You've heard that already this, this weekend, right? I am not speaking against holding that interpretation. But Marcus will tell you that it is an interpretation. And you've heard him say that, that this is an interpretation. If we force people to have our interpretation of the text and say it's this or nothing because everything else collapses and falls away, then we set them up for a problem. There, there, there are ways of faithfully having a high view of Scripture, understanding the text that are not necessarily literal 24-hour, six days. I'm not advocating for that position. 
I'm just saying that there are many good believers out there who hold that position and have not completely abandoned their faith. They have had to think through the, the repercussions of that. They've had to think through the consistency of that in their theology elsewhere. But this is the second thing that gets elevated to an essential, and if it goes, everything else goes with it. A third is this, that hell is a literal lake of fire where the majority of humanity is going to go and suffer. I think that there is a real place called hell. I'm not casting any doubt on that. But I think that the description of hell in the Bible is broad and perhaps we have focused on the literalness of the fire and the brimstone. And maybe it's not as literal as historically we've thought that it was. I'm not convinced that the, you know, that the majority of people who have ever lived are going to go there and who are going to sort of suffer in this burning torment. I, I think that there are, are faithful ways of reading the text that say hell is real and that it's a terrible place and that no one, really want, no one wants to go there and that having serious depression and anxiety and, and these kinds of issues in life are almost like a foretaste of what hell will be like. So don't hear me say that hell is not a real place and that it's all allegorical and it doesn't exist. But you can faithfully read those texts in ways that you don't lose your entire faith if you have a different version or interpretation of that. That certain spiritual gifts are required. That you really aren't a Christian unless you speak in tongues or unless you are willing to believe in prophecies and prophets and apostles that have, you know, that, that, that have been part of your church group or church denomination. And generally, overall, a really strict literal approach to interpreting the whole Bible. I know of one Bible scholar who is so convinced that if the, if the rooster doesn't crow six times in the, in the crucifixion account, then the Bible has a mistake in it and it can't be the Word of God. Because if you read the Gospel accounts, there are different ways that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record the, when the rooster crowed. And so he says, look, uh, the only way we can harmonize those is by saying that the rooster crowed six times. Well, that seems to be an incredible stretch to me, but he reads the Bible so literally that, and, and enforces a sort of a new, uh, a modern Western understanding of truth on an ancient document that you end up really with these strained interpretations and conclusions. But it's not just beliefs that people have a problem with that are told these are the essential things and you have to believe. It's also practices, right? Dancing. You can't be a Christian and dance. Not well, anyway, right? <laughs> dating. No dating. You, d dating is always bad. And as real Christians, no... Now, look, you can say, I'm a Christian, and, and I don't think that dancing is good. And as a Christian, I don't think that dating is a, ha is, a, is a positive practice. Because I think that you're more than welcome to say all of those things. Those are all eminently justifiable. But it's when we say that, as a Christian, this is wrong for everybody at all times and all places. And this is what Christianity is, right? No tattoos. Tattoos, you can't have a tattoo and, and be a, a Christian. Certain styles of dress, you can't do that. You have to dress a particular way. That alcohol is always wrong. That Christians should never drink any alcohol. That listening to secular music is always wrong in all places and all times. Uh, working or doing any kind of work on a, on a Sunday is always bad. Uh, f particular views on finance, uh, you know, kissing before you get married, uh, use of birth control, uh, educational styles, uh, hair length for men, hair length for women. These are all things that I, I think are well within every, every Christian's right to have an opinion on. And, and, and don't hear me say that these are wrong to have opinions on. What I'm saying is if you hand someone all of this and say this is what Christianity is, you can't do any of these things or there's a particular way and you have to believe all of these things, 
What you end up having, oh yeah, and jewelry, you end up handing them a house of cards faith. And a house of cards faith is one where if you pull one of the cards out, the whole edifice is going to collapse and fall down because all of these practices and beliefs have been raised to such an essential position. And so the result ends up being quote-unquote biblical Christianity is a burden that's too heavy to bear for people. Number two, being underprepared. So we're, we can overprepare, we can underprepare. And when we underprepare, it's when we don't help people live the old, old story in the modern, modern world. And I talked about that a little bit the other night. This is characterized by feeling embarrassed or maybe feeling foolish at the content of one's belief. And it's unable to maintain a, you know, a belief in the Bible in the midst of the 21st century. Well, how does this happen? From surface simplistic Bible teaching, right? From Sunday school understandings of faith, just think of how uh, your understanding of the Adam and Eve story has grown in its depth and its understanding and its nuance and its maturity as your understanding of math or economics or physics or biology has grown. You probably heard the Adam and Eve story right around the time you understood that one plus one equals two. Let's just say kindergarten. And you heard about two naked people and a talking snake and a magic tree. And that's why the snowplow dumps snow at the end of your driveway every year because the world is all messed up. Right? That's why there's cancer and that's why there's stealing and murdering and terrorism and thunderstorm or, 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 or tornadoes and all this kind of stuff because God created a perfect world and, and Adam and Eve started the whole thing off and caused a problem. And you understood that one plus one equals two. And then you went off to school and you continued to learn and your math got more complicated and more sophisticated. And by the time you got to the end of university, if you're a math major, you could launch... There are, there's people here in the audience right now who probably have the ability to launch a rocket into space with their knowledge and their ability, Nathan Lambert, um, right? Has their understanding of the depth and the nuance and what's really going on in this creation story, has it matched their understanding of their math skills and, and the way they've matured in every other area of the world? Probably not. Probably not. But do you know that there's a ton going on in that story? There's a lot. It's not just a simplistic Sunday school story. Those are the kinds of things that need to be brought out. How does this also happen? The impact and formative power of our secular culture. And we talked a bit about that last night, right? We live in a world where believing in these stories of the Bible don't really fit in with our everyday experience or the experience of the world around us. Let me give you an example. This is Peter Berger, who's a, uh, a sociologist. He says, there exists an international subculture composed of people with Western-type higher education especially in the humanities and social sciences, that is indeed secularized. Now, when I say secular, I just mean, secular means that, there, that, that religion, its meaning, its import, it, it, its weight, its influence in society and culture is pushed out to the margins, that it doesn't have a place, that our discussions have to be this worldly, that have to be neutral and unbiased and secular. So he says, look, there is this international subculture composed of people with this Western type higher education, especially in the humanities and the social sciences, that really is secularized. They think that, that, that everything that we should be talking about should have religion out at the margins and it should be privatized. 
This subculture is the, pro- the principal carrier of progressive enlightened beliefs and values. While its members are relatively thin on the ground, they are very influential as they control the institutions and provide the official definitions of reality, notably the educational system, the media of mass communication, and the higher reaches of the legal system. Peter Berger, uh, sorry, uh, James Davison Hunter is a sociologist at Virginia. He is a Christian, um, but he is also very well respected in the world of sociology. He's re- regarded for his work in sociology and also as a, as a Christian for his Christian work in sociology. And he makes an argument that culture is not just sort of the hearts and minds ethos that, that bubbles up from a large group of people, that if you can just change the hearts and the minds of enough people in Sault Ste. Marie, that the whole attitude of Sault Ste. Marie will change and we will have a different culture here. He says that culture is not that. Culture is an artifact or it's a product. And it is produced by certain institutions and those institutions really influence and affect the hearts and minds of everybody else. So people like Google and Apple and Facebook, uh, MGM, Universal, Disney, Time, CNN, Fox News, Harvard, Princeton, Stanford, these are all at the center of producing and creating our culture. And that is really what is is, is really behind the cultural world that we live in. And so when we're raising people in the church and in our families and we want to socialize them or disciple them is a better word into the Christian faith, we, we, we need to prepare them that the world that they're moving into is going to seem very foreign or it's going to see their story or the, the, the narrative that they're living by as really out of step with the world that they're living in. I would feel, even now, I'm the guy up on stage talking at an apologetics conference, I would feel embarrassed at UCLA or USC to stand up in the middle of some psychology or anthropology class and tell them that I believe that the Bible is a historically reliable document and that there really was a historical Adam and Eve, because I know how they would all look at me. Well, how is it when students or your young people are in a high school class in the discussion of a particular hot social topic comes up that has something to do with gender identity or same-sex attraction and they're going to try and they're going to identify what they believe about that that is really difficult they need to be prepared right so there is this feeling of being overwhelmed by the difference between the world of the bible and the world that we live in we live in a culture that is practically atheistic practical atheism god has nothing to do with our culture he's not invoked He's not part of any of the institutions. We don't appeal to God to explain to anything. And we live in a disenchanted world. There are no spirits. There are no souls. There are no fairies in the garden. We don't appeal to essences for why. uh, We don't say like we're all bound together because we have something in common called human nature, like this metaphysical essence. Ah, We're all just products of chemistry. There's nothing deeper than that. We live in a very technological age where we can manipulate and we can control the world around us because of the science that we have. All of that really pushes God out of our daily consciousness or even our need for him in lots of ways. Here's an example. This is by a guy named Galen Rose who was a former former Christian. He says this, Look, we could begin by considering some of the creatures they wrote about in the Bible, such as witches, wizards, sorcerers, spirits, ghosts, giants, dragons, and sea monsters, satires, and unicorns. Modern science can't come up with the slightest trace of evidence that any of these creatures exist or has ever existed. This stuff was just made up. Other mythical oddities in the Bible include a talking snake, talking jackasses, a 
talking bush, a 900-year-old man, a man whose superhuman strength resided in his hair, three men who walked unharmed through fire, a man who lived three days in the belly of a whale, a wandering star that somehow led to a particular building, and a corpse which stood up and walked away after three days in a tomb. No half-educated adult living today who is not indoctrinated in this stuff since childhood could take seriously or would ever consider even for a moment that any of this stuff is really history. We're under-preparing people to deal with that. Because if we're honest, we do read pages in the Bible, and if you read it quickly enough, it seems like every third or fourth page there's something miraculous that happens. Then you close the Bible, and you go back to your university, or you go back to your high school, and nothing miraculous is happening. Right? And you do hear all of these kinds of stories, and then you go back to your university or your high school classroom, and you talk about how we've mapped the human genome, how we can beam our voice into outer space and have it land on the other side of the world instantaneously. And we're reading and basing our life on a book that is written by kind of a Bronze Age tribal group of people 3,000 plus years ago or so in the 21st century where we have radically different ways of approaching the world. It might be hard to hold those two things in tension, right? You really believe that? This is Robert Wuth now. He writes a lot on this. I think he's a believer, but I'm not exactly sure. And he, he's written the book called The God Problem. And here's his quote. In the past, before the advent of, of scientific medicine, people who held superstitious beliefs could perhaps be excused for the false ways of thinking, critics argue. But in the contemporary world, being superstitious is a sign of stupidity. Thoughtful, educated people should know better. So what's the result? Feeling kind of embarrassed feeling kind of sheepish about what you believe, wondering if it's really true, a little bit maybe analogous to believing in Santa Claus at some point. Here's number three. This one is a little bit more on the ground, and that is um, ill-prepared. We're ill-prepared when we don't live authentic lives in front of those who we are mentoring. It's characterized by resentment towards hypocrisy, It's characterized by resentment towards judgmentalism and a belief that Christianity is only a system to oppress those who are different. How does this happen? Well, studies show that parents have the greatest influence on faith transmission over and above everybody else. So in some ways, that can be really encouraging. If you live out of faith in front of your children that is more than just lip service to it and more than maybe just showing up on Sunday and kind of doing service, do you know that you have a higher chance of passing on that faith and it will be, it will be um, absorbed by your children than if you're just living kind of a nominal Christian life? When parents don't live out their faith, we end up with this uh, lack of it transmitting to their kids. And that's partially because there's a big generational shift that's taken place. We talk about the greatest generation. Tom Brokaw wrote that book. And one of the things that characterized the greatest generation was the belief that they had a duty or an obligation or a responsibility to something bigger and greater than themselves. There is a generational shift today that ever since the 60s, the dominant underlying values of young people is not duty, obligation, and responsibility. It's authenticity, freedom, and desire. That the thing that they really can do is live an authentic life. Be who they're going to be. They have the right. No one can kind of tell them what to do. They have to uh, be who they are and express their individuality. 
Because that's, you know, you're, you're foolish if you're living for somebody else and doing your duty and responsibility to some system that's overwhelming you and, 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 and squeezing you into its inauthentic mold. And, and I'm not criticizing either one of those. There's probably a healthy balance in between the two. But if young people care about authenticity, then the best thing that we can do to convince them in a nonverbal way that Jesus really is who he claims to be is be authentic. Right? Young people have a hard time, and it's really difficult, to affirm truth claims. We live in a world that is increasingly in the soft, sort of squishy sciences, or the morals world, the worst thing you can do is offend someone or tell someone that what they're doing or what they're believing is wrong. Their religion is wrong. Their lifestyle is wrong. This behavior is wrong. That behavior is wrong. This is how you should be doing it. Really hard to do that for a whole bunch of different reasons. But you know the one thing that everybody agrees on, especially young people? That Jesus was a really good guy who really cared for people. He really loved the outcast, the downtrodden, the marginalized. And that his people and his followers should really do the same. And so they're really looking for authenticity and people living out the message of Jesus, not just arguing or presenting the, the verbal side of it. They know it's right to care for people. They know it's right to help the broken. So here's the prescription then for hope. What can we do? One, ask this question, what are the essentials? What are the things that are important? Now, I'm going to tell you um, sort of how I'm doing it with, with, with my kids because maybe a concrete example is the best. When it comes to being a Christian, there are a few things that you need to affirm. One is that, that Jesus really is who he claims to be and that his death, burial, and resurrection is the means by which you can have a relationship with God. That he has taken your sin and he has um, reconciled you to God by trusting and believing in that. When it comes to being orthodox, and by orthodox it means right belief, I want my kids to be able to affirm what the historic Christian creeds have always said, that um, there is one God, uh, Almighty Father, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, yada, 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 uh, you know, crucified, coming again, you know, those kinds of things. There are three historic creeds that all Christians at all times pretty much have all affirmed and agreed. If my kids say, I'm convinced that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and He's my Lord and my Savior, I've submitted to Him, and that I have this belief in these big kind of boundary markers of the Christian faith, and I want to be a virtuous person and live out a life for Him, I will be thrilled. But if my son says, but you know, Dad, I believe in evolution, I will say, I tend to think you're wrong about that. But you think that God's the one who did it? Uh Uh-huh. And you think that He directed it with a purpose and a plan? Uh Uh-huh and you love Jesus, and you're trying to follow him as best as you understand his word? Uh Uh-huh. Great. You know, Dad, I think also that I'm not really convinced that my my daughter says to me, I'm not really convinced that the Bible is completely inerrant. Okay. Do you love Jesus? Do you believe these things about him? Do you believe these large boundary markers of Christianity? Yes, I do. Have you thought about maybe some of the consequences and some of the things, how this is going to affect those large boundary markers? Yeah. Okay. I want my kids to be people who are majoring on those majors and who are trying to live authentic, virtuous lives that represent Jesus really, really well. 
I want them to have intellectual humility and be able to acknowledge that differing opinions are okay. In fact, all of us who have spoken up here have different opinions on, on many different things. And we recognize that we don't always have it right. We always don't know what the right, thing, the, the, the right position is. And so we allow for some flexibility and say, yeah, that's okay. I got to be honest with you, and this is no slam against Bethel, but I wasn't sure that the people that went to First Baptist were even saved when I grew up. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And that's not a criticism of Bethel. I, just have, I sort of just absorbed that somewhere along the way. Um, there was no flexibility in me, and some of you know that, and my parents for certainly you know, know that. Um, there was no flexibility because I really thought that this is what Christianity was and what it had to look like. And I don't want to make the truth of Christianity rest on anything but Jesus and his resurrection. Right? We're not fighting for a system of truth. We're not fighting for a system of doctrine. We're, we're trying to say that Jesus really has entered the world, that God has really been here. He lived among us, and that he died, and that he rose again. And if you can start there, then most other things kind of become this in-house discussion that there should be some areas of flexibility on. Of course, we can go too far in that and say, well, yeah, but what about miracles? Well, they never happened. And oh, what about the resurrection? It was just spiritual. No, no, no. I'm not saying that's all up for grabs. Here's Augustine. He says, in matters that are obscure and far beyond our vision, even in such as we may find treated in Holy Scripture... Different interpretations are sometimes possible without prejudice to the faith we have received. In such a case, we should not rush headlong and so firmly take our stand on one side that if further progress in that search for truth justly undermines this position, we too fall with it. That would be to battle not for the teaching of Holy Scripture, but for our own wishing its teaching to confirm ours, whereas we ought to wish ours to conform to that of sacred Scripture. That's great advice. Number two, what can we do for those who are unprepared? I think that we can help young people be aware of how culture influences us, us to see certain claims as worthy of our belief. It's really important to realize that just as there was a culture in the Middle Ages, there's also a culture that we live in right now. And we buy into all kinds of assumptions about that. And some of those assumptions aren't true, and yet they kind of cast aspersions on belief in God and the Bible. And two, I think interdisciplinary Bible teaching helps. I think it's really helpful for young people to be able to see that there are Discoveries in sociology and discoveries in psychology and discoveries in anthropology and discoveries in history and discoveries in science that really align up with the Bible. We have a friend of ours who's a psychologist and, and does teaching sometimes uh, in our Sunday school group. And it's fascinating when he brings out things like, do you know that psychological research shows that when people have intercourse, that there are things that are going on in their brain that kind of bond them and attach them and chemicals that work this way such that they form this deep personal communication and interaction together? And then he goes back to the Bible and says, and so maybe this is part of the reason why God says that this is something that it should be within marriage alone. I think it's really helpful when my friend who's a sociologist says, you know, when Paul says this, this, and this about husbands relating to wives and slaves relating to masters, our, our, our world today looks at that as really repressive and domineering and out of step with liberal ideas. But yet in Paul's time, this was really a radical position and it actually laid the germ, it was the germ and the seed that allowed for, eventually for things like women to vote and people to, you know, and slavery to be abolished and, and all of that. And we say, that's great to know. Whoopsie. There we go. And lastly, I want to say humble apologetics here. Humble apologetics. The kind that you've heard here that says we don't have the answers always and we can't prove everything. But we have really good reasons for what we think is, is the case. And everybody has a story that they have to live their life by. And we think that this one is really well supported and one that's well worth you committing to. 
What we can do as far as ill prepared goes, I just think live authentically. I think we share our struggles with people and say, I don't have it all together. I have questions. I sometimes have doubts. Seek forgiveness, especially to people that we offend, like our kids, those who we minister to. Let them know that we don't have it all together. And I think that we live the gospel. We do justly. We intentionally do good. We love others and we sacrifice for the gospel. This means not just putting money in the plate as it goes by on Sunday. It means being with your kids and seeing somebody who's on the road and who's homeless and saying, hey, look, let's stop and get them something to eat. Because that's the right thing and the loving thing to do. Not so that it sells Christianity to your kids a bit better, right? Like this is not just an ends justifies the means kind of thing. It is living authentically and living out the love of God for people in a meaningful way and, and not just doing it maybe within the confines of the church. Let me leave you with this and I want to give you a word of encouragement. This is a Russian author and a, and a commentator back in the late 1800s and he says, a man is like a novel until the very last page you don't know how it will end. I know that there are people here who are thinking of people in their life who either... Uh, are wrestling with their faith or have walked away. And I want to just remind you that there's a big difference between being Peter and being Judas. Um, Peter, if you would have looked at him, you would have said, hey, this guy has deconverted. He denied his faith. He left and he, he, he walked away. Three times he clearly says he doesn't know Jesus. But what's going on on the surface is not really reflective of what's taking place in his heart. And we, write, we find that Peter does come back to his faith. And he lives a life for Jesus that is honorable and noble all the way to his death. Judas, if you would have watched Judas, you know, if you were one of the disciples, you would have thought that he was a genuine, sincere follower as well. Uh, Because uh, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, no one looks at Judas. and says, well, it's obviously Judas, right? But Judas wasn't repentant. Because what was really going on in the heart of Judas was, was not real, genuine conversion. Just because someone denies their faith does not mean that they're, all, that they're a Judas and that there's always hope that they will return and that they will be a Peter. And so I want to encourage you with that. And I want, don't want anyone to leave and feel bad like, well, I, you know, I did one, two, and three. I didn't do a really good job of that, and this is where my kids are. Because I can think of, of sets of twins who have who've grown up in the same home and, have, and one is a missionary and is out in the mission field and one is living a wildly prodigal life right now. Same family, same DNA, same everything, same preparation, two different results. And I want to tell you about Darren Raspberry. Darren uh, was a Christian, identified as one. And when I say was a Christian, I simply just mean sociologically. He identified as a Christian, was in the church, made a profession, uh, and for years. And then became disillusioned and lost his faith and became a blogger on a well-known Christian website, uh, ex-Christian website. And for years, about 15 years, he argued against the truth of Christianity and uh, recently, though, has come back to his faith. He has reconverted. He is a revangelical, I guess. And this is what he says. Sometime last week, I realized that I could no longer call myself a skeptic after 15 years away from Christianity, most of which was spent as an atheist with an active, busy intent on destroying the faith of others. I returned to a church with a real intention of going for worship. Last Sunday... Although I know I may struggle with doubt for the rest of my life, my life as an atheist is over. And there are not as many, but there still are many, and there are growing pages on the internet where you can find stories of people who are like Darren. So I want to encourage you that this is not the end of the story and that people are like novels. Until you get to the last page, you never really know how it's going to turn out. This is my website, um, and it's sort of a shameless self-promotion, but if there are questions that you have and if there is more information that you would like, 
You can go here. It's just my name, johnmarriott.org, two R's, two T's. Um, you can find the book there and you can order it. You can um, find out some more information. And uh, if you have any questions, there's also a contact page for me there as well. So I haven't paid any attention to the clock during this whole discussion. I have seen people getting up. There's a few people who are sleeping. Um, <laughs> and so I just want to say uh, thank you. And, uh, and I'm certainly more than um, happy to, to chat with uh, anyone afterwards who might want to discuss some of the things that I've said. So let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this time. We pray for your hand on uh, those who are here, and we ask that you would encourage them with things that they've heard and that they might persevere and endure in a culture that is challenging, that they would be faithful and that they would uh, be followers of yours until the last chapter is written. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, John.